0: Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, forgive us our trespasses. Help us to see the reality of racism and free us to challenge and uproot it from our campus and even from ourselves. Give us the wisdom to know when we are wrong and the humility and the strength to own up and to take the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature of a servant, toward our brothers and sisters. We ask for forgiveness and for transformation as we open our hearts and our minds in prayer together this morning, allow us to see your divine image and likeness in our neighbor. We pray this scripture for ourselves from the Gospel of Mark of Matthew. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your entire mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two great commandments we pray this in your heavenly name amen
1: amen um, so if you can just bow your bow your heads close your eyes as i pray this prayer oh lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth we thank you for bringing together in your worldwide church people of all ages from every tongue and tribe and language and nation through the precious blood of christ you have called those who were far off and have brought them near not only near to you, but near to each other. We pray for racial reconciliation in our nation and in our churches. We thank you for all you have done to sustain our African-American brothers and sisters through centuries of suffering and mistreatment. Thank you for the opportunity we have in the body of Christ to worship with those who are unlike us in culture, temperament, and background, but like us in faith. Grant that we may be united in truth and abounding in steadfast love. We pray for those who have been given great blessing and privilege in this life. For all those who enjoy advantages of family, of wealth, of education, and of opportunity. We know that to whom much is given, much is required. May those who fit this description be especially eager to listen and learn from those whose experience may be far different. Bring healing to this land, O Lord for the stain and sin that is our history of racial prejudice. We lament the racial bigotry that has taken place in our nation's past and continues to exist in the present. If ever we have been a part of this sin, have perpetuated the sin, or have turned a blind eye to the sin, we repent and ask for your mercy. Dear Lord, remove the unhealthy suspicion that so easily creeps into the human heart. Guard us, all of us, of every skin color against self-justification against self-righteousness, against the lack of care and compassion for others. Turn away the schemes of the devil, that fiendish serpent who loves to pull apart those whom Christ has joined together. In the midst of all our differences of, of outlook and experience and political inclinations, may we never forget all that we have in common as descendants of the same Adam, as children of the same fall and as sinners redeemed by the same Christ. Give us joy as members of the same family with Christ our brother, you our Heavenly Father, and the Holy Spirit as our inheritance and bond. Give us a sweet sense of fellowship in this church. Help us not only to be friendly, but to make friends, especially with those who may not think or look just like us. Give us forgiveness where we have failed you, and patience for those who have failed us. Give us grace to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. We pray all of this in the name of the one who is Lord over all and the savior for all, Jesus Christ, the righteous, amen.
2: Today's speaker is a 2003 graduate of Eastern Nazarene College. He's the husband to Jen, who graduated from ENC about a year after him. He's the father to Andy, to Annabelle and Oliver. He received his master's in urban ministry and leadership from Gordon-Conwell in Boston in 2016. Currently, he is the pastor of Brockton Covenant Church, a multiracial, multi-ethnic church that seeks to be peacemakers in the way of Jesus. He is also president of the board of Brockton Interfaith Community, an organization that addresses racial and economic injustice through faith-based community organizing and From what I I just learned, that he's also just recently been ordained. Let's give a warm ENC welcome to Reverend Dave Capozzi as he comes.
3: Hello. All right. This is a good segue because no one should have to follow Dr. King, especially a white guy. right? I didn't hear enough amens. All right. Hi, ENC. Okay. So that's one thing we're going to have to fix from the start. Hello, ENC. All right. All right. All right. So um, before I get to, uh, I I need to segue because that was powerful. Um, So what I I need to do for myself before I enter into anything that I'm going to speak about, before my clock starts, I would really like to invite us into a moment to pause and to consider what you've just seen. Uh, It should have been jarring to you no matter where you come at this from. No matter where, that should have been jarring to you. So I invite you into this silent space for a moment before I begin to tell you a little bit about what I prepared for this morning. How many of you are angry in some way after watching that? Broken hearted. Confused. Yeah, keep it, keep it up. It feels, it feels very strange to follow this up because ultimately Dr. King's legacy has been co-opted by people that look like me. His legacy has been co-opted by whiteness, and I stand in the tension of that reality before you, and you need to know that. That as I stand before you on your Martin Luther King chapel, I recognize that people that look like me and who hold positions of power and privilege have taken what he did and have neutered and sanitized his message. And so I stand before you knowing that and hoping that that is not what you hear today. I need to name my intention is to never sanitize one of the greatest prophets that we have seen in the last 500 years. So, who am I? Uh, I did graduate here almost 16 years ago. Uh, I am a white man, as you can see. I am a husband, I am a father, I am a pastor, and quite simply, I am a person made in the image of God. as are you, as are we together, amen? I stand before you as someone who has never experienced the trauma-inducing impact that racist structures and systems have had on black and brown communities and individuals in this country. So I'm here to share my experience, which has been the process of repenting from racism. Uh, anyone that knows me from my time at Brockton Covenant, there are a few of you in here, or that knows me as a friend, knows that I will likely quote The Matrix if I'm talking about racism. It's a really important movie about this, I, th- I think. Uh, there is a line that Morpheus says to Neo, has everyone seen The Ma- I know you're probably, it was came out when you were born probably. It's a very important movie. Uh, But he says, there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. Now, I have not walked the path, but I've been in the process for the last 12 years at least of listening to, as Robert has encouraged us to, people who are walking the path. And so I share this process of repentance with you today, hoping that it will be helpful. We are also here, and I'm also here myself, to reflect on the legacy of Dr. King And consider how we might continue the work that he did. Like Jesus said to his disciples, you will do greater things than I have done. We do not stop with 1968, we continue to this day. And we wonder how we can continue on his legacy. But before I can do that honestly, I have to consider my place in the story of racism in this country. What is my relationship to Martin Luther King Jr.? and ultimately to the things that he was fighting against, racist systems and structures, greed and violence. Now, if you asked me a little little over 10 years ago, I would have said that my only connection to racism is that I hate it and I think it's disgusting. How many can resonate with that? I don't think that's a stretch. All right. But I was convinced, having grown up here in the Northeast, that racism was a Southern problem. that the real racists were flying Confederate flags, wearing hoods, screaming uh, bigoted words at people of color. That's where the racists are. Up here, we're enlightened. We got Cambridge and all of our universities. We're a bastion for liberalism. I understood racism to be an individual's choice And apart from some of these lunatics, we as a country were past it. That was my understanding. You see, growing up, now I'm a child uh, of the 80s and 90s. That was the era that colorblindness was encouraged most. And being a kid who was only allowed to listen to Christian music, I remember in particular one song, and I'm not going to name the artist because I don't want to make him look bad. I hope he's repented of this song. But it's called, uh, the the lyric is, Why Can't We Be Colorblind? This was a, a, a project of Christianity in the 80s and 90s, of the faith that we practice today. That was supposed to say that racism's over, we're all good, let's stop talking about it. And just sit together and be in harmony, sing kumbaya together. And also, my best friends growing up, my best friend, my brother's best friend, they were black. There were black people on TV. I don't know if many of you knew Steve Urkel, um, but that was like one of the biggest shows on television. Some of the biggest musicians on the planet were black. People that I was finally able to listen to once I got my own car. Like Tupac and, and Biggie. Mom's not in the room, I don't think. And on top of it, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. And I learned about him in my school. From the years of 12 to 18, ages of 12 to 18, I grew up in a suburb of here, uh, Hanover, not far from here. And we learned about Martin Luther King. And we, we saw pictures, we saw videos like this that made people that lived back then look like horrible human beings. And I could swear when I was in that class, along with everybody else that was sitting next to me, all white kids, that if that were happening today, I would do something about it. I grew up in an era that believed that racism was not a thing anymore. I will say white people believed that it was not a thing anymore. And so for me, growing up in a place that was all white, I did think that was a little weird when there was only one black kid in my school. But I didn't think, it never crossed my mind, that somehow, maybe, that was the result of redlining or racist systems and structures. It was just like, you know, birds of a feather flock together. So we got white towns and we got, you know, urban centers like Brockton and Boston and Dorchester, all that sort of stuff. That was the way I was conditioned to think. And then I ended up here. And much like it is now, Eastern Nazarene College was a very diverse college. Most of my friends, if not all of them at the time, were Cape Verdean. There was this whole influx of Cape Verdean kids who played soccer, and they were all my friends. My roommate was Cape Verdean. He's still my best friend to this day. And I noticed at the time, and it bothered me because my friends were either on the basketball team or the soccer team. I noticed that, which is not named this anymore, but the Colonel's Coffee House was where the black students hung out. And the white students kind of did their own thing too. And so that bothered me. But racism didn't cross my mind. That wasn't a part of the conversation. I didn't think Eastern Nazarene College could be racist because we were diverse. But I have news for all of us today that just because we are existing in diverse spaces does not mean we have overcome whiteness. Now I don't know this place today and I'm not accusing you of anything. I just need that to be said. My church is a diverse space and I own we are not overcome, We have not overcome whiteness. This is not me coming here to judge you. You need to hear that. I'm in this with you. But I went on continuing for a while that racism was elsewhere. Until in my mid-twenties, I ended up in Boston at Gordon Conwell's urban ministry program. Now, Gordon Conwell is is a famous evangelical seminary. Many of you might not know about it, but it's it's actually, uh, the main campus is in Hamilton, Mass, which is a very affluent uh, place that is mostly white. And us in, in Boston, we called that place the Holy Hill. You know, it's the place that, that only the really elite students went. And they would, though, they would sometimes come visit us uh, to get an urban experience. But I ended up there by accident. And what ended up happening was I was um, I was one out of three white kids out of a class of fifty. And I I didn't know what I was getting into, but I remember my very first class, I was in class with a professor named Soong Chan Ra, uh, who if you, I believe he's spoken here, uh, who if you've not heard him or read anything by him, do yourself a favor. He's written a book called The Next Evangelicalism that he was writing when I was in seminary there. And he starts my very first class with uh, of course, racism. And I'm one of these three white students. The other two had come from the Holy Hill. And they came saying that racism was not a problem in America anymore, and it certainly wasn't a problem in the church. I got laughs. Good. You can laugh at that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That was good. The room did not laugh the room erupted with anger and disbelief that fellow brothers in Christ did not see the experience of their black brothers and sisters in the room. And for me, that was a a jarring experience because I told you how I was raised to think. Now, I have remained silent, but I was fundamentally changed that day. And I cite that day as the day that I realized that I was white and what that meant in this country. Pre- previous to that, I had no concept of what it meant to be white. And so that, those 12 years ago have, have now sort of that kicked off my journey towards repenting from racism, a journey I am still on to this day. And that journey has not been easy, and it is not easy. I've experienced feelings of guilt and shame and fragility, fear and despair. I've experienced friends and family really annoyed by me bringing this conversation up all the time. You know, just trying to have dinner with some friends and Dave's talking about racism again. But worst of all, churches that I've been a part of have told me to stop talking about this because it is not a gospel issue. But the problem is that I began to see racist systems and structures everywhere. Because like in The Matrix, once you see, you cannot unsee. Once you have tasted and heard, you cannot untaste and unhear. It is everywhere in this country Everywhere. It is in this room right now speaking to you. So I wondered if this is not a gospel issue, then where is the church in this conversation? And I began to realize that we, the white church in this country, have embraced what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the deadly enemy of the church which is called cheap grace. It is grace without cost, he said. And he said, we are fighting today for costly grace. If you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a Nazi resistor. And the reason he had to speak the way that he did about the church is because the church had embraced and supported the Nazi regime to a point where they were flying flags in their sanctuaries. If it had not been, For the German church, the Holocaust would not have happened to the scale that it did. That should shock us, my friends. And it should make us think about right now, where are we posturing ourselves in this conversation? I began to see that I am a man of unclean lips surrounded by a people of unclean lips, as Isaiah says. In chapter 6, verse 5, and most importantly, I began to see Jesus in a whole new light. I began to see how religiously, uh, socially, and politically subversive he was. Something I was never given the chance to learn because in the white church, we don't talk politics. Unless it's Right to Life Sunday, or or if we're talking about gay marriage. No, but that's not politics. That's just our social sins. But I began to see that Jesus did not shy away from any political subject. He hit them head on, which is why the state killed him. And now, having understood Jesus in a different light, as a first century Jewish man, I see many of the ways in which I have filtered everything in my life, not through Christ, even though I grew up Christian, but through whiteness. With Jesus' stamp of approval. Because you see, not that long after Jesus died, he was turned into a white man with flowing hair and blue eyes. Not that long. Holding lambs. And so we made Jesus white, neutering him, sanitizing him, and my apologies, but having those on our walls and our necks, execution devices, we have sanitized Jesus. So why wouldn't we also then do it to Martin Luther King? Well, one thing we can't do is make him white. We've got video. (laughs) But one thing we have done is we have taken quotes of his and prioritized the ones that are most appeasing to white people. So quotes that are beautiful and powerful like I have chosen love because hate is too great a burden to carry, right? How many white people posted that meme this last weekend? It's not a judgment. All it is to say is that that's an easy one to swallow compared to when he's calling white people out in Birmingham jail. For for saying they're with him, but then questioning his methods. The truth about Martin Luther King is that at the time of his death, At my age, 37 years old, 75% of white folks disapproved of him. And that's a conservative number. 75%, which was 25 points higher than in 1963. What happened? First of all, what happened in those five years that made him more detestable to white people? And second, what has happened since that has made him a face of the empire? Now, I think that what happened in those five years is that he established the the Poor People's Campaign and he started to attack not just racist systems and structures, but also poverty and violence. Now you're going to mess with all of America's economic ways of surviving, keeping poor people down, and and our you know uh, our war machine. You can't do that. Like it's fine. Do do your civil rights stuff. But it was enough for him to tackle those other things. That 25 points higher, white folks did not want anything to do with him. and here I am not much longer, 20 years later, learning about how he's a hero. I'm sorry, does anyone see the dissonance? How did he become an enemy of the state? And then 20 years later, I'm learning about how amazing he is and how racism is dead. We take these images of people like Jesus and Martin Luther King and we turn them into images that not only support the empire but hold up their values. So Jesus gets two holidays a year and Martin Luther King gets one. And our Christian nation gets to claim that we are more moral than other nations. Because look at who we have on our side. There's a reason that God told the Israelites not to make graven images. Because once you've done that, once you've made Jesus white, then he becomes the supporter of all things white. Once you've turned God into something that looks and smells and tastes like the things you care about, then God supports everything you care about. And that's not the God we worship. Amen? We have turned Jesus into whoever we want him to be. And when there's a supreme or dominant culture, which is unequivocally white culture in our context, we have used those images of Christ to advance our cause, like the Vietnam War, like slavery and Jim Crow, and police brutality to this day. Thank you to whoever made that video and who included Colin Kaepernick in this conversation. Because right now, he's not very popular. Give him 20 years. Once he's gone, people are going to love Colin Kaepernick. Our kids will. The white church has been complicit in slavery, Jim Crow, police brutality, and so on. Because we have not shown up for our brothers and sisters of color. We have not listened, as Robert encouraged us to do. We have judged. We have segregated. And so we find ourselves in this very present moment, needing today to repent. I don't know how many of you shudder when you hear that word, but I grew up in the 80s when it was turn or burn stuff. And they used repent or you're going, you know, to the lake of fire forever. The truth is, you probably know this, but repent simply means to turn in a different direction. So you're going down towards empire, you're facing that flag and you're giving it honor, but instead go that way and go towards the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was saying. This thing upholds empire, that is God's kingdom. You can clap, please. If we're not clapping for that, I don't know what we're clapping for. And so this is, our scriptures have something to say to us today about this. In Luke uh, 3, verses 7 to 14, we have this scene where John the Baptist is doing his thing. He's preparing the way for Jesus. And tons of people are coming out to him. I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to tell you why I think this has something profound to say to my people, the white church. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes. Come on in, everybody. You're a brood of snakes. (laughs) Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Here's the important verse right here. Prove by the way you live that you have repented and turned to God. Prove by the way you live that you have repented and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. What is our modern version of this? We're safe because Jesus died for us. Cheap grace, my friends. It's there in the first century, just has a different tinge on it. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So, the crowds being compelled in some way ask, what should we do? And John replies, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, What should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. And finally, some soldiers, Romans, not Jews. So the first two groups are Jewish people. Third group is Rome. Very different. They're coming out to him and asking, what do we do? He says, do not extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. What is the common denominator? It seems like it's greed, right? In some way, each one of these, even though there's a different answer for each group, there's a different answer for the crowds than there is the tax collectors, than there is the soldier. But each one of them, he gets to the heart of what they're doing that is not in line with God's good kingdom. It seems to be greed. Greed. The other common denominator is that they're going out to some lunatic in the wilderness. Like, the way the Bible describes John, it seems like he's crazy. No? You all go to a Christian school. Don't act like you don't know John the Baptist. (laughs) Locusts and, like, come on. That's a guy I probably would stay away from. But for some reason, all of these important people, including Roman soldiers who were the occupiers of Israel... We're trying to find life in this crazy person. They knew in some way that even them, even the Roman soldiers were oppressed and dehumanized by the empire they served. So white people, hear me now. Just because you are privileged in this context does not mean that you have not been dehumanized It does not mean that you have not been oppressed by the principalities and powers that rule this world. You have been dehumanized as well. To the point where you don't think that you need salvation. That you need to be set free. The Roman soldiers were clear that John had something that Caesar didn't. We need to become clear That our friends of color who have been oppressed by this nation have something that the president's office does not have to offer us. That our hope is found in something different than the red, white, and blue. These soldiers understood it. We must understand how we have been dehumanized so that we can find salvation as well. It is an important word for us white folks we are told to be feeling shame about ourselves all the time. Shame does not produce good fruit. Shame will never produce good fruit. And so if you're sitting here feeling shame about yourself, do me a favor and go towards guilt instead. It's a little bit better. You've inherited something that you did not create. And so you have perpetuated it in some way, just like I have perpetuated it. For that, we are guilty. That does not mean we are condemned. We can Repent. And this is the message John is giving, even the Roman soldier. Now I don't know about you, but I want to pursue the kingdom of God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because I know that there is life. I desire to be a part of a holy nation where priestesses and priests of color, of different ethnicities and and tribes will teach me what I have missed as a son of the empire. And so if there is to be racial justice, the white church in America, of which I am a child, must repent. We cannot be satisfied with simply having relationships with people of color but must instead, as Robert encouraged us, into moving into a posture of listening, learning, and showing up. And that is what repentance will look like. Quite simply, listen, show up, be led. It is time for us to stop holding this microphone. It is time for whiteness, the white gaze, to stop informing the way that we view Yeshua, our Messiah. It is time for the white gaze to stop telling us what Martin Luther King was like. And it is time for us to listen and to learn and to, to use our power and privilege to, to empower people of color Not to keep them in places where we feel safe, but to give them authority over us to tell us where we need to be going. Just like the Roman soldiers did with John the Baptist. So my question for you, ENC, is are you asking this question? Are you asking, what do we need to do? Or are you satisfied with diversity? Are you asking the question, what must we do to repent, or are we just praying, saying words? What does John say? Prove by the way you live that you have repented. And so when we say we repent, wonderful, I believe that what God cares about is proof. What God cares about is seeing how you have repented When you have asked, what must we do, what must we do? That's the question. And I invite you, ENC, just like I'm seeking to do, to repent from racism every day of my life. Because whiteness occupies this body. And it will always have some kind of hold on me. So if I'm not listening, if I'm not following people of color, then I prefer that over the kingdom. And I do not want that. So I invite you to hold me accountable, just like I now am asking you in in a way that is trying to hold my alma mater accountable, to say, what now? I invite you to ask that question. I invite you to really lean in to the people of color that are in this place that I've already seen lead so tremendously. And have experienced myself from people that have graduated from here and have come with me and have led me and have shown me ways that I continue to be white. I'll just end with this. One of the things that I'm learning, not only in this conversation, but in my my marriage, is a great posture is whenever someone tells you, hey, you did this, and it it was a really white thing to do, or you did this and it was really, you know, patriarchal, whatever your situation is, that's me. Um, I carry all the markers of privilege, a white male Christian pastor. So I'm operating out of those often. If someone says those things, I was just encouraged to, to lean into this. Say, yeah, yeah, that sounds like me. That sounds like me. What are you afraid of? Are we people that believe in grace? If we really believe in grace, then we'll say, you know what, I screwed that one up. And then what's going to (laughs) happen? Because the truth is, friends, greed gets us started down these bad paths of racism and slip, But pride keeps them going. Pride keeps it going. So I invite us to not lean into that and to just say, you know what, God, we have fallen short. We seek after your ways, not our own ways. Please forgive us, and we start to move in another direction. Amen?